Thanks for listening to Wrestling Change My Life, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Today's guest is UFC Hall of Famer, former UFC world champion, Pat Miletic. Where do you even begin with a guy like this? He was the first UFC welterweight champ, winning the title in, out in Brazil, in the trenches out there, and then went on to lead the military's fighting system, which at one point in time had three UFC champs on the roster, not to mention Robbie Lawler, who was waiting in the wings. So this is just an iconic podcast. Hope you all enjoy it. Of course, Pat wrestled in his past. Who hasn't? Who's worth their salt? So sit back and enjoy this one, folks. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time. Enjoy the show. Well, I was a fanatic. There's no doubt a fanatic. My goal was to get carried out of the wrestling room because of exhaustion, and it never happened. The thing it did for me every day about 6 o'clock is that when I got out, I looked back in, and there was nobody else there. Bottom line was I didn't reach my goal. So guess what happened? I went back in the room again. But I got some quality time because of just some kind of a fanatic goal. Pat Militich, welcome to the show, man. Thank you. Glad to be here, buddy. Absolutely. So there's a lot to be uh, to be said about you. UFC Hall of Famer, you're on the Joe Rogan podcast, and you're just growing up in the Quad Cities. I know a lot about you, but I don't know kind of how you got started with wrestling and, and what your family was like growing up. So maybe just take us way back to you know, kind of middle school, high school, and how did you get involved with the sport and what was it like growing up for you? Well, I mean, I got involved in wrestling. I think I was probably six at the time. Um, there was, it was kind of a, I barely, I vaguely remember being in the gymnasium. And what it was, was all the elementary boys from Bettendorf, Iowa, which was a wrestling powerhouse long before I was in high school or anything. Um, they had kind of a, a wrestling seminar to get kids familiar with wrestling. And Tom McCutcheon and John and uh, and Glenn, another guy, uh, they ran the middle school program. They were incredible coaches. And what they did was is they taught all the elementary gym teachers how to wrestle if they didn't know how to wrestle, or they tried to make sure that they put those type of people in place in all the elementary schools so they could start the elementary programs in all the elementary schools. Then by the time those kids got to middle school, uh, you know, they would have the basics understanding of wrestling by the time they hit sixth grade. And then McCutcheon and Glenn would take over, turn us into machines. And then we'd go into high school where our team was generally number one, two in the state, um, in the state of Iowa. So, but I went for this seminar and I was walking home, all the kids were leaving. And for whatever reason, me and this other kid got into it and he took me down and, and, uh, slapped me around a little bit and I couldn't get away from him. I couldn't figure out what, what, what was going on obviously he knew how to wrestle and then i realized i found out from one of my friends that's they said that's tom mccutcheon's son john and he's he's the middle school wrestling coach's son so i said all right well i gotta stick with this wrestling thing because that was not fun <laughs> at all i wasn't i wasn't digging that so i started wrestling you know at that point pretty much i committed to it i was horrible um all through elementary for the most part i lost got pinned uh, a lot um, got a little better in middle school and slowly, slowly got better. But ultimately wrestling, although I did it more because of the freestyle in the summer and summer tournaments and all that sort of stuff. When I was a kid, you know, wrestle all 
all winter. And then during the summer, I actually wrestled more than I played football, but I wrestled to stay in shape for football because my, all my brothers were real big, tall guys. And I figured, well, I'm going to play linebacker at Iowa. I already figured that was a given. So I, uh, so I wrestled to stay in shape for football, but I stopped growing at 5'10". <laughs> <laughs> so your family was just a bunch of boys, athletes, super competitive growing up. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, uh, customarily, Croatians are, are really big people. So all my brothers were 6'5", six, 6'4", six, uh, but I was, I was the runt. And it might, it, I, for all I know, it could have happened because I cut so much weight all the time from sixth grade on um, yeah. all through my life in the, my early 40s as a fighter. So uh, who, who knows? That, that may have done it. But, um, yeah, I was, I was the, I'm kind of a runt when it comes to Croatians. Well, it's probably a blessing, though, because – if you went on, you know, if you were bigger, maybe you wouldn't have gone on to, to wrestle at, at the junior college level, then get into MMA. You know, we'll get into that in a second here, but, you know, so, so you grow up wrestling and, and naturally, you know, it seems like you're a fighter, right? You had a lot of street fights and whatnot growing up. Um, right. So then you go to junior college. Where'd you go to junior college at? On the outskirts of Iowa, right? Uh, first, first place was Sioux Empire. And it's, it's kind of a long story, but, but uh, Mike Wolf went there with me. Terry Van Winkle and Tommy Salivar, all of us from Bedrock. Mike Wolf from, you know, American Pickers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all went there at the same time. Um, but there was a there was a a scandal, kind of a scam going on. The the administration, the dean, the faculty um, were in on them. Some of them were in on this on this scheme. They 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 gathered all the student athletes at that school into the auditorium, and we were in the auditorium, and the faculty got up and they spoke. Some of them. And said, you know, customarily we see big problems with student athletes not being able to manage their money, their Pell Grants, their, you know, this money, that money. So what we're going to do is we're going to have you guys sign your checks over to us. And there's hundreds of athletes there, right? So you're going to sign over your, your money, your checks to us. We're going to put it in an account and we're going to pay for your classes and your books and everything accordingly as, you know, the year progresses so that you don't mismanage your money. And I looked at Mike Wolf and I said, they're at very least collecting the interest off this account, if not taking it all. Right. And, uh, and Mike and I got up and we walked. Yeah. So Mike and I got up and we walked out and I actually called, uh, I called uh, an FBI, uh, um, department in that area. I think actually it was in Des Moines that I called and, uh, they ended up investigating it and, all those people got, got arrested for embezzling something like $6.8 million from that school. They closed that school down. Um, so then I went to Kirkwood for a little bit also. And then my mom got sick with heart problems and I just basically had to come home and, you know, help pay bills there. I was working three jobs, uh, making ends meet. And then, um, and that's how I ended up deciding that I was, I wasn't done competing. Um, it was kind of an interesting story. Sorry to drag on, but no, no. I was pouring. I, I was I was pouring concrete one day, and and the mechanic for the company was a real big concrete company, and the mechanic that worked on all the diesels and the equipment and everything else uh, was a, a black belt in karate, and and he started John with me. He was I think he was a, a Tennessee guy originally, so he was John at me in his Tennessee accent that you know a karate man could destroy <laughs> a and and kickboxer could destroy a wrestler, and this was long before the UFC, and I said, hey man, lunchtime. Let's, let's do it. And, uh, so lunchtime we went out in the field and, uh, I just double legged him and slapped him around and, and, uh, he couldn't get away from me and realize that, that, uh, he had, 
run his mouth a little too quick. And then he gave me a free week pass to go to a karate kickboxing gym and said, just come up and try it. He goes, I think he'd probably be pretty good at it. Cause I had boxed a little bit when I was younger also. So, um, went up there and that's kind of where the, that's how it all got started. And, you know, me getting into martial arts. Now, what time is this? Is it like the eighties, nineties? Eighties, eighties. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know what? You could ask me, you know, what date I won the UFC title. I, I cannot tell you. I don't even know the year because I just don't pay attention to any of that stuff. I just, you know, all my right. belts and all the other stuff are in boxes in my basement. I just, whatever. It's uh that's a different life. You know, I do different things now, obviously. Um, right. It was fun. It was fun. So this is the eighties. And at this point, people have no idea about wrestlers or MMA. And you, most people probably thought Mike Tyson could be in the, any man in the world. When in reality, Alexander Karelin could probably have kicked that. I mean, who knows, right? But yeah, this is kind of like well, the if, early if, days. If, 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 they, if they, you know, they have to get close enough to hit you, you're close enough to grab them. And generally, that's, that's how things would end, you know, in fights like that. Right, right. And so you, you get into kickboxing with the wrestling background. And you're one of the first mixed martial artists. How did you transition that to this event in Chicago where you, I think you, had like your first MMA fight and went into kind of a career in UFC. How did that all transpire? I got a, I, I was fighting um, K1 rules kickboxing up in Chicago and a guy that refereed a couple of my fights, Joe Goitia, who's a, a really good martial artist out of Chicago. He still has a gym up there. Uh, he called me one day and he said, Hey man, he goes, there's a, a tournament up here, eight man tournament, no rules, no time limits in a cage. Um, it's uh, winner take all second place gets no money, but he goes, I think I can get you in this thing. And I go, wait a minute, no weight divisions, no rules. And he goes, no biting and no eye gouging. That's it. And I go, sign me up, man. Sign me up. So, <laughs> um, so I went up there. Yeah, I won that. And then I won the second one. It was called the battle of the masters and, uh, won the second one. And they actually brought in a, a, a K1 world kickboxing champion that was Andre Dudko from Russia. He looked exactly like Ivan Drago from Rocky. I kid you not. It freaked me out when I saw him. I'm like, dear God, this guy's a monster. Um, but he luckily was crappy at wrestling uh, for that one Russian that didn't know how to wrestle very good, right? That he was a, yeah. he was a devastating, devastating striker. So he, were, he and I were on opposite sides of the brackets, and, and we met in the championship, and I ended up choking him out. And, I don't know, like two and a half minutes or something and won the second one. So, uh, but yeah, that was kind of, that was me off to the races. And is that the one where you broke your forearm? I read somewhere like your first fight, you broke your forearm and got super tired. No, and that was, you realized how hard you had to train. That was my first kickboxing match. Um, I fought a Illinois state kickboxing champion. And, uh, first round pretty, pretty early. I hit him with a spinning back vest and, shattered my forearm and had to finish a five round fight with, with a broken arm and, and definitely learned that, uh, you gotta, you gotta modify as a fight goes on when things get ugly. So, so my training definitely ramped up from there. I was a, I was a right hand. I could throw bombs with my right hand. My left arm was seemed almost useless back then. And after I broke my arm, I had it in a cast for a long time. So, cause it was a pretty bad break. So I just worked jabs and, and hooks and uppercuts with my lead hand um, nonstop. And it ended up giving me, you know, a, a lead hand that I could control fights with. 
So, okay, you kind of use that as your advantage then. Now, now was Michael Nunn around the Quad Cities at this time, or is that later? Oh, no, Michael Nunn was around. Michael Nunn was around. Yeah. Okay. And uh, he was uh, around that time was when he was the reigning world champ, pound for pound best fighter in the world. That, we trained out of the same boxing gym. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, he. Yeah. that's a crazy story. A lot of people don't know about. Um, sad story, really. But, uh, um, yeah, I mean, this guy was like the legit world champ, like Sugar Ray Leonard world champ level, right? Yeah. Well, he, you know, you say it's a sad story, but he's the one that wrote it. Right. Right. You know, so there's not much you can say. Now, was his boxing coach the one hanging out at your gym when you were running Militage Fighting Systems? Pena? Um, that was his. That was his nephew. Um, Alvino Pena was my boxing coach. Alvino, okay. um, he started the Davenport Boxing Club, trained you know a lot of incredible boxers, and uh, I asked him, I asked him why he did it one day, and he and I actually got along really well. He never yelled at me. He yelled at everyone else, but he never yelled at me. Um, I think he just maybe thought figured I had work ethic. I didn't need to be yelled at or whatever. Right. But uh, I asked him, I said, why do you put up with this shit, man? There's so many kids that come in here that disrespect you and stuff like that. I go, why do you put up with that? And he goes, he said, uh, before my oldest son left for Vietnam, my son got drafted and he said, um, dad promised me if I make it back alive that you'll quit drinking. And so he promised him he would. And um, unfortunately, Alvino's son, oldest son, was killed in Vietnam, and he stopped drinking immediately and just dedicated his life to to raising raising all these kids from from the wrong side of the tracks and taking care of them for his entire life. I mean, I can't even imagine how many thousands of kids went through his tutelage, you know, and it, and it changed a lot of lives. So it's it's a really really interesting story. So he used boxing as a way to get kids off the street, so to speak. Yeah. And, you know, he lost his son in Vietnam and I think that was his way of being around kids and boys and, you know, his, his, his sons were great boxers, Pat Pena, Mike Pena, a bunch of them. Um, and then Matt Pena was a very good boxer. And he, like I said, as you mentioned, uh, was in my gym helping train the guys and their striking with their boxing. And so, um, yeah, it was, you know, the, the roots are pretty deep there. Yeah, I mean, the Quad Cities is, uh, for the folks who aren't from that area, two cities in Illinois, two cities in Iowa, and what used to be a major hub for manufacturing uh, combines and tractors. My grandpa was a welder at Case IH, retired from there, but like many okay. of those towns, uh, yeah, he, he is a welder at Case IH for a long time. Um, I can okay. remember going in there the, the day he retired, and it was like 130 degrees in there because it was the middle of summer, and he's like, we worked in this for 30 years. Um, so just a really tough life, tough town. But like many of the of these manufacturing towns, when we started shipping jobs overseas, the economy collapsed a little bit. And so right. you know, that that's kind of like the MO for the Quad Cities. But out of nowhere, you know, you have an incredible career in the UFC. You're the first champ. You defend it four or five times. Um, but then you start what I consider, many people consider the first MMA training school, you know, the military fighting system. And went on to train, you know, world champs at almost every level. Jens Pulver, Matt Hughes, Robbie Lawler, um, Tim Sylvia. So how did you, how did that kind of come to be from just being a fighter to, to running a gym and getting all these people to migrate to the little known area of the Quad Cities? Well, I mean, I, I opened my own gym um, pretty early on. And uh, because I, 
the the kickboxing and karate school that I started at just they they just didn't understand the wrestling mentality, uh, how to train correctly, all that sort of stuff. And so um, I decided it was time for me to do my own thing. He had gotten in some legal trouble. Um, we got it on the gym, so it was time for me to split away from that. And so, yeah, I just I rented a racquetball court. I I was given some wrestling mats by a guy that was going to throw these old wrestling mats away, and I put them on the floor and the wall of this um, uh, racquetball court, and we just turned it into a battle box. And I knew that I needed good training partners, so I had to I had to take guys that were you know, whether they were a wrestler or not, I had to get them as good as possible, as fast as possible, so that I had good training partners. And that's how the coaching started. And then it kind of just snowballed from there. And that's interesting that the sport was so new, you had to train fighters to get them, uh, so you could get better yourself. Um, yeah, so yeah, did, yeah, it was, uh, go ahead. It's just amazing. And you know, what was most apparent about the training system from my readings and just from hearing stories is you, know, you took that wrestling mentality and applied that to training right you think about jujitsu and i like jujitsu a lot but it's real laid back you might drill for 30 minutes and roll for 30 minutes and that's it um right yeah, i've never had any experience with kickboxing but it's not like a wrestling room right where it's literally you're coming every day and you're strapping it on and anything could happen right so right. you kind of applied that to fighting at an early age. Right. Yeah, no, it was, it, it, it had to be intensity. I made sure that, you know, every, everything that we did in practice, as far as, you know, when it came to training, strength and conditioning stuff and fight speed training, um, you know, it, it, it had to be, especially the strength and conditioning had to be more misery than any fight could ever be. Just because um, after breaking my arm in a fight, even though I was in great shape, you know, I panicked a little bit and it fatigued me. And I, I, you know, I had to, had to struggle through that fight a little bit, um, endurance wise also. So I never wanted to feel that again. And I never wanted any of my guys that I trained to have that kind of problem to lose because of fatigue. Uh, it's just not an excuse that falls back on you. And so I just made it very intense and, and most people wouldn't stick around for those, for that level. You know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't venture into the room for very long uh, just because it was so intense and uh, you know and the guys that did stick around got really good and it just snowballed from there and, and that's that's kind of how it just built it, it was built and is it true that the reason you tried to weed guys out was really because of a, a tragedy you witnessed early on in the mixed martial arts circles when that uh that fighter actually passed away in a fight in chicago and you kind of realize, shit, man, I, I can't have any guys in there who can't, who can't hack it. Or is that more, more rumor than anything else? No, no. What happened? I was a special guest at a kickboxing event in Chicago. And, uh, there was a kid that got in the ring and I went, Ooh, this kid's not in shape at all. And then once he started fighting, I, it dawned on me that he had no training either. Um, and it, it ended up tragically, uh, he got hit with the right hand, went down, got back up and then collapsed. And there was no ring doctor there. He was downstairs tending to a kid with a broken nose. And I'm sitting there just as a special guest. I don't know this kid from, from Adam. And the referee's standing over him counting. And I see the kids, uh, I see the kids having some serious trouble. So I immediately climbed through the ropes. As I got in the ropes and pulled his mouthpiece out, um, two more guys climbed through the ropes and said they were volunteer firemen. And, uh, 
right when they got in there, uh, they stretched out. The kid stretched out, stopped breathing, and his his eyes, his pupils dilated instantly, right in front of me. And I went, I went. He just stopped, stopped breathing. Guys, start breathing for him. And I was trying to feel for a pulse. Uh, but it, none, you know, in the end, he he passed away in our while we were working on him. Um, he turned, I mean, dark blue. And uh, so I, I, that was something that was very lasting for me. It was, it was horrible to experience. And I never wanted any of the athletes that trained with me to have to, to, you know, for me to have to tell their parents, you know, that they got seriously hurt or killed because they weren't properly trained. So a lot of people didn't like me back then. People that would come in and, and watch practices um, thought that I was too extreme and too much of a, a jerk. And they called me prick and everything else. And people would write me, people would write me letters and say, you're just, you're, you're cruel, you're this, you're that. And, and uh, but they didn't understand what my motivation was, um, that nobody, nobody belonged in the cage unless they were absolutely 100% committed in great shape, strong, knowledgeable, and, and had great techniques so that, uh, so the tragedy, you know, didn't, didn't come. So, um, yeah, I was okay with that. I was perfectly fine with that. And, uh, you know, I think everybody in the room that stayed around was that committed. Also, they, they understood why I was the way I was and, and that's why they stuck around. Well, it's interesting because when I would come around the gym with Steve Rusk and we could talk about him a little bit, but you know, you would come in there and there would be Matt Hughes and his twin brother, Jens Pulver, you know, Lawler was there, Tim Sylvie was there and everyone would be going really hard. Spencer Fisher. But like I didn't know that was any any different. And then to start reading some of these articles about you getting ready for this, to hear why you did that makes so much more sense now. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and um, you know, you know, those there were there were those guys were you know because people would travel from around the country and around the world to train with us. They'd come say, hey, "I'm going to train with you for a fight," or uh, somebody would say, "Hey, I'm going to." I'm going to come to, I'm going to move to Iowa. And I'd say, you do not move to Iowa. Do not move to Iowa. Come here for a week. See if you like it. See if the guys like you. And then if, if you get done with an entire week and you want to come back and then, then we can talk, but uh, they still would just show up with U-Haul trucks and sleeping in my parking lot of my gym, you know, like what the hell are they doing? And, but, <laughs> but most of the, most of these guys would show up on a Sunday in town, come to the first training Monday morning. And then by Wednesday night after sparring, they were done. They were going home. And they're like, this is not, this is not what, this is not for me. The sport is not for me because they were the, you know, maybe the best guy in their gym. But then when they come to our gym, you know, at one time we had over 40, 40, 45 guys um, that were ranked in the top 10 in the world in different weight divisions. So everybody that you grabbed, was a monster. So you got no easy goes. Everyone was trying to pull each other's arms off and smash each other and making each other sharp. And, and there was a lot of camaraderie and intensity. And most people that weren't up to speed with that, um, weren't used to that atmosphere would just, they just fall apart and quit. So, um, the ones that, like I said, the ones that stuck around were, were golden. So how did you guys, when you guys sparred, was it, like all out sparring or like, did you do it every day? Or like, what was the routine for the week when you were? No, back no. I mean, Monday would be, you know, Monday night would be, um, a lot of times takedowns. And then when we do groups of three, winner stays on the mat, then loser stays on the mat type stuff. Uh, of course we drill to start out, warm up correctly. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when I notice, uh, people starting to get sloppy injuries, 
probably were getting close to start happening because everybody was getting fatigued, um, battling for takedowns and everything. Then I'd say, all right, um, get a drink and then we're going to just go to the ground. We're just going to stay on the ground and work and grab submission grappling and stuff like that. Um, sometimes we would put the boxing gloves on and drill, um, sparring with takedowns. And then Tuesday was just strictly grappling, grappling mm-hmm. drills, all kinds of grappling drills and live grappling. And then Wednesday was just sparring, stand up sparring. And then Thursday we'd be back to grappling Friday, Friday back to striking. Saturday was a lot of, uh, a lot of mixed stuff, strength and conditioning and everything. And then Sunday was off. Wow. You had just some freaking killers in there doing this every day. And, you know, what was funny about the gym was that it was a gym where like there was like a, a like a treadmill room, right? And there would be these moms in there <laughs> on the treadmills and like people just doing their normal workouts. And then like during the water breaks, people would come out and they can be ble- bleeding from the face. You'd have these absolute world champion savages in there, like training a room over from the moms on the treadmill. It was hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. And most of the, most of the people that were members at the gym and stuff were, were, you know, okay with it. You know, they obviously, yeah. the new, the new members would be a little startled by it, but you know, <laughs> I, I think it was, uh, I think it was pretty neat. And, and the thing about mixed martial arts at the time and still today, people that, people that focus and are experts in grappling only say, look, I get it. Most people, you really don't want to get punched in the head for a living. I get it. That's okay. You know, businessmen, doctors, uh, you know, even just housewives or business women or uh, just people from different walks of life who would get really good at grappling um, could come to the advanced grappling class and grapple with, you know, all the world champions and world ranked fighters. And many times they were, you know, catching the fighters in submissions also because they were so good on the ground. And, uh, and so it, it, there's no other sport, you know, I can't, you and I can't walk onto a, an NFL uh, football field in practice and say, Hey, you know what? Um, let me play tailback a little bit. Let me, let me run the ball up the middle and show you what I got. You just can't do that in any other professional sport, but someone who is a non-professional athlete who can get really good at this stuff with jujitsu, jujitsu and wrestling yeah. can climb yeah. in with the, with the fighters and train with them. It was unreal. And that's exactly what the team, like the guys who I would come with would do like Tyler Clark, who was a state champ and, and junior national champ. You know, those guys would right. come in on Tuesdays and Thursdays and roll with like a Spencer Fisher. And you know, to your point, they'd be so freaking tired that sometimes you could catch them, right? And they got pretty heated in there if, if something like that happened. But it was a really cool environment. And, you know, I don't know what it's like now with some of these gyms. Like, you know, I consider AKA to be very similar to what you used to do. And maybe I'm wrong on that, but they seem like they go all out all the time. Do you know much about those oh. guys? Are you close with that, Jim? I think that they train quite a bit like we used to. Um, maybe not all out all the time, but uh, certainly when they do go hard, they go real hard. And uh, I think it shows in, you know, the number of champions that they've produced over there. And, and uh, you know, like, like my old saying is you, you can't become a, a, a professional race car driver by practicing on the interstate going 70 miles an hour. It's just you can't do it. Um, so right. stimulating right. a fight without, without getting into a fight, you know, when you're all padded up, you know, you're in the gym, there's people observing, paying attention, making sure nobody gets hurt as much as possible. Um, and everybody being responsible as far as look, if I land a big punch, I throw a three punch combo and my hook lands clean and I see a guy wobble, 
I'm not going to go for the kill and finish him. I'm not going to try and knock him out. I'm going to back off, start going to the body. And that's what I would tell all the fighters, you know, the same thing. If I see somebody get, get rocked a little bit, I'd say, go to the body, stay to the body. Do not hit him in the head anymore. You know, things like that. Right. And one of the guys who was in there and last, last kind of thing on the, on the fighting stuff where we get into what you're doing now, who really was kind of unknown at that time was Robbie Lawler. Um, I know what you're going to say, but I got to ask what happened with that fight with Ben Askren, man? Was he out? Was he not out? What's your professional opinion on that? Cause I, I'm a huge Askren fan. I just love, and Lawler, but I'm just curious what you thought happened. Yeah. And I like, I like uh, Ben Askren a lot too. And, um, but you know, Herb Dean messed, really screwed the pooch on that one because, you know, he grabbed Lawler's right arm to check it and Lawler gave him the thumbs up and he, di- he didn't even pay attention to the arm after he grabbed it. So, if I grab your arm to check and see if you're conscious, I'm therefore going to pay. I'm telling you, I need you to give me a signal <clears throat> with that arm to tell me that you're okay, right? Uh, Lawler right. did that. Lawler gave him a thumbs up, and then he jumped in and stopped it. It made zero sense, and Herb knows he screwed up. Uh, every, everybody over at the UFC knows it was a screw up. But, uh, you know, somehow um, I, I'm still a little bitter, to be honest with you, that there was no rematch because Lawler didn't lose that fight. There was, you know, that was complete. A com- and Dana White admitted it to me on the air. I was, I was, when I was calling fights on Access TV, Mark Cuban's network, Dana sat mm-hmm. down for an interview with us and I asked him about it. And he goes, yeah, he goes, Herb, Herb really screwed that one up bad. And, and, uh, but yeah, that's the thing that I, I have no idea how they go from, um, that situation to Askren now fighting Masvidal and Waller not fighting. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it, I don't understand that. Uh, I thought for sure there would be a rematch. And you could honestly say at the beginning of that fight, they could have stopped the fight for Lawler. Askren was in serious trouble at the beginning of the fight. Oh, Askren, Askren, Askren was getting his ass handed to him. Bad. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen Lawler look as good physically as he did in that fight. The guy was a freaking specimen. And he's, I don't even know, is he like 35, 38? He's old. I mean, but he keeps looking better 30, every time 34. I see him. I think okay. he's 34, which so is you not mentioned old, your, really. No, not really, not at all. So what are you doing nowadays, Pat? Are you are you still with Legacy Fight Alliance? Are you doing commentating? I know you have a conspiracy podcast. Well, I work, life I, like I right work on the team. Yeah, I work on the network TV side. So I don't, I don't work for uh, LFA. I work for Mark Cuban's Access TV. Um, okay. So I do that. Then, then I've got a, um, a podcast called the conspiracy farm that I host. We've got listeners in over, um, listeners in over a hundred countries, millions of downloads. So that's doing really well, picking up steam. And then, um, also working on launching a clothing line called survival skin clothing. That'll be performance clothing for combat athletes, for, um, clothing, wicking material for say soldiers and law enforcement to wear underneath their ballistic vests, uh, base layers for hunters, fishermen, ultra runners, you know, anybody that's, that's doing anything, you know, intense basically is what the clothing line is going to be created for. And there's, there'll be different waves of development that we're going to go through. Okay. What now the conspiracy stuff, this speaks to my interest because I'm, I'm obsessed with conspiracy. I shouldn't say obsessed, but I like looking at things from yeah. a different angle. Like what are, what are some of the topics you guys have covered? Have you done like moon landing stuff? Have you covered like Bob Lazar and the UFO stuff? Like where, where are you guys we've at? gotten in we've gotten into some of the extraterrestrial stuff the you know ancient uh the uh sumerian kings list you know the emerald tablets we had on uh, billy carson who's an mit 
uh, propulsion scientist talking about the, the ancient civilizations, Sumerians, King's List, the Emerald Tablets. You know, we get into geopolitical and domestic policy stuff. Um, you know, I mean, we were we were talking about who was who was funding ISIS. Um, I mean, uh, six months after six months after ISIS started, you know, and, and uh, you know, I would pose questions to to mainstream media people and say, uh, listen, you got you got to just you got to start being honest with me. I know, I know you guys are paid to lie, but. I mean, it's pretty obvious right now, and, and I'd ask them, I'd ask, you know, I'd ask a mainstream media person, I'd go, all right, listen, let me ask you this question, and, and if you don't know the answer to it, at least try and find out. I go, who's doing the banking for ISIS oil transactions with Turkey? Could you, could you maybe look, dig into that a little bit and tell me who's doing the banking? Because it's happening. <laughs> they took over the refineries. They're selling the oil. Um, so No shit. You know, yeah. Well, yeah, we funded ISIS. We build ISIS. A 50,000-man army doesn't just appear out of nowhere with high-tech weapons. Um, they, they get paid, and, they, and they're handed a lot of weapons, and, and there's Jordan, a massive Jordanian training facility that some of my friends have worked in who were training guys that, you know, the name Ali and Mohammed and things like that. And you, a few years later, you got ISIS, and, you know, it is oh, what it shit. is. But, but uh, you know, it's 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 obvious that the last administration created that, and it is what it is. Um, you know, it's it, we get into a lot of that stuff. You know, it's like Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Uh, the day after Trump announces that we're going to get out of Afghan or out of Syria, that Trump wants us out of Syria, the very next day there's a chemical attack, and the mainstream media is trying to blame Bashar al-Assad with um, hitting his own citizens with chemical weapons. The day after Trump says we're leaving. Why would Bashar right. al-Assad kill his own citizens and get bombed more by us in Israel? Uh, you know, it, it, none of it, it, it it's, they, they keep using the same playbook um, over and over. And, uh, you know, it's just the globalists trying to do their thing and take resources. And, and we, just, we just report the truth. We go after Democrats. We go after Republicans. We, we don't care, you know, if they're, if they're doing the illegal stuff and, and uh, funding terrorist factions um, with American tax dollars, well, we're, we're, we're going to say something. Now, do you believe there's anywhere you can get good news on like the major networks today, or is it all slanted significantly? Uh, it'll be in bits and pieces, but it will be, they'll either just not report on it or they'll just report it uh, in a totally different light. Um, you know, the NDAA part of that um, that was passed, you know, in stages, but the part that was passed where it was legal for the, media to put out propaganda to lie to the american people that 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 was passed when obama was in office um so you know people the, the thing that's frustrating for me is that citizens actually defend the media when the media is actually lying to you lock stock and barrel and uh, it's it's very unfortunate that you know it's it's uh, it's like they say it's harder to convince people they've been fooled than to fool them in the first place and thank God for the internet, because before that, all people knew was the news, which you can realize now how insane that is to comprehend to only get your, only get your facts from the news, because it's obviously not the most credible, credible spot. You, do you ever have Eddie Bravo on there? I would think that would, guy, that guy would eat that up, man, going on your show. Um, Eddie Bravo and I and Sam Tripoli and my co-host uh, have done what we call swap casts where our shows will combine into one show and we'll just have a big discussion. 
And, uh, no way. and yeah, Eddie, has been part of it. Definitely. Is he as, is he as crazy? I'm a massive fan of the Joe Rogan podcast. I've been following it for about eight years. Is he as, uh, as crazy as he is there in real life? Uh, he's very passionate about what he believes. Passionate. I'll tell you that. And yeah. he's, he, he's yeah. a lot of fun to talk to. <clears throat> um, of course I don't yeah. subscribe to the flat earth thing. Um, but Eddie, <laughs> Eddie, Eddie seems to think it's legit. And uh, Hey man, that's, you know, it is what it is. But, uh, but, uh, but no, he's, he's a very bright guy actually. And obviously very intelligent, oh, yeah. for, you know, that creating, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the jujitsu style that he has and all the, all the great jujitsu people that have, have come out underneath him. Yeah. No, 10th planet's awesome. Um, and, and when I say crazy, I mean that in the best possible way. I love his, his take on things and he got me looking at a number of different things differently. Um, so Pat, right. I know it's, it's the day after the fourth, you lead a busy life. I just wanted to close down here with, with three kind of more so rapid fire questions, uh, getting back to the, to the kind of the wrestling days and then we'll let you go. Is that fair? Yeah, sure. Great. So first question is if they had MMA around back in the, back in the eighties and nineties, who would have been a better MMA fighter, Tom Brands or Royce Alger? Tom Brands. Okay. Is there anyone in any way, in any organization that you think can be Habib Nurmagomedov? <clears throat> I mean, I would say um, style matchup wise, that would have to be somebody like Askren. Um, if Askren and he could meet at a, at a, um, you know, catch weight, Lawler could beat, I would uh, beat the Russian, but I, at his weight right now, I just, I don't know, man. That's Ferguson. Ferguson has a chance, of course. Um, Ferguson's awesome. But, yeah. But, but not going to be easy for any of those guys to do because they can't wrestle at his level. And he is, he is, uh, you know, he's a, a pretty rugged dude, man. He can take shots. I'd like to see Woodley in there because Woodley's so explosive. And I think his wrestling, you know, could be on par. But, man, it's, it's just a, that's a big weight jump. And I don't know how many fights Habib has left. Right. Well, he's still undefeated, so he hasn't taken a, a ton of damage. No, no. And then last question, Pat, and I ask this to everybody, but if you had to kind of summarize in a few words, what has wrestling taught you about life or like, why are you grateful to have it in your, in your past? I mean, or what has it done for you? Like, how, what would you say to that as we kind of sign off here? You know, I, I think it gives you a mental and physical edge, period, because you've, tort you've been tortured mentally and physically. You've years and years in the hot wrestling rooms and getting beat up by, by your buddies and, and, uh, cutting weight over and over and over throughout a season year after year after year, it just mentally makes you tough enough to deal with almost anything in life. Any, any downfall, any bad turn of luck, you know, um, it, it just, it kind of imprints, it really imprints a work ethic and a mindset for life that, that just very few other sports, maybe swimming, um, mm. is as difficult or, di or more difficult, um, depending on how you look at it. But, yeah. um, I mean, that's why I got my daughters into swimming from the time they were age five. They, their work ethic is, is incredible. We don't have to tell them to do anything. They do everything they're supposed to do straight A's and get up at four thirty in the morning to go to practice. Um, you know, they do what they're supposed to do. And it, it that's the mentality that, that you want to pass on to your kids and that hopefully they pass on to theirs. Yeah, there's something about the individualistic sports that seem to bring that out. Swimming, no doubt, it's so freaking grueling. Um, yeah. And and I think with, with wrestling, it's the 
it's the fact that there's nowhere to hide if something goes wrong and it's the accountability. I think accountability is something that's probably lacking a lot more, more now than it used to be. And that seems to be a common theme and something you hit on. Um, well, cool, man. Yeah, well, and you learn. I really you, you learn how to you learn how to be humble in wrestling. You get humbled often. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, just not a day goes by where you're not challenged in some way or another. I mean, listen to John Smith. Even he had bad practices after he had won several World Olympic titles that made him question things. You know, so it's yeah. kind of that questioning and inner inner self reflection is always happening in the sport. Right. Well, thank you for your time, sir. I appreciate it. And when you see when you see Steve Russ punching for me, and see if that works out for you. <laughs> that guy, I wouldn't do that too if I had a million dollars. I trust me, I wouldn't punch him either. I know better. <laughs> he used to do this thing when we were grappling. He used to put his whole hand over someone's mouth, like it was legal, but it was the dirtiest oh, that, he, thing he, I ever he saw would in my do life. That. He, he's he's he was doing that before anybody ever thought of it. God, man. And I wonder, like, how many, like, what was it like to be Tim Sylvia wrestling that guy when you first moved from Maine to your gym? I mean, it had to be a tough couple of months for him. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, there was a while there where Steve, not to carry on too long, but I'll just finish with Yeah, this. not at all. Yeah. There was a while where Steve Rusk would grab Tim and throw him down. Tim was the reigning UFC champion, heavyweight champion. He couldn't do anything to stop Steve. Steve would grab him, throw him down. Fish hook his mouth until blood was coming out of it. Gouges gouge his eyes with his thumbs until Tim's eyes were black and blue and swollen shut. And I mean, Tim would literally scream bloody murder and couldn't get away from him. And Steve would just laugh the whole time and bully and pick on the heavyweight world champion. That's the end of this episode, but definitely not the end of the show. For more episodes, please go to wrestlingchangemylife.org. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a star rating. Show the love, baby. Show the love. Thank you so much. We'll see you again soon. Peace.